Science and Criticism Meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. This is Nick. And I'm Allison. Ooh, and today we are going through Deborah as well as some other stuff. Uh, so here's what we've got ahead. Um, we're going to update you on where we've been. Well, sort of. We'll be extremely vague and unhelpful. Anyway, then we're going to do drinks, at least for me, in Lent. Mm. <laughs> and then we'll talk a little bit about um, some of our, interestingly, uh, distance dating, because it relates to Deborah. Yes, Deborah. And then we'll go through Judges 4 and 5, and we'll be covering Deborah, Jael, and Barack. Mm-hmm. And then we will answer some objections, because there have been quite a few interesting objections. Well, uh, like two. Well... They're all interesting, and that's the polite way to say... Um, interesting, yes. Although, I generally use that in a nice way, because I'm very much... Gravi- I gravitate towards interesting things. Yes, you do. And then, lastly, we'll go through some of the listener questions. Yep. And so, uh, today, Allison... Uh, I just poked him, because he forgot that he was going to introduce the updates. Oh, the updates, yes. So, what have we been up to? He's just putting it on me. Yep, I'm putting it on you. Oh, so we're... Okay, where have we been? Well, I have been to SBL. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think... Yeah, there we go. I went to SBL. In Denver, Colorado. Okay, very nice. And got to hang out with David, my friend. Mm Mm-hmm. And his friend, but we fight over him sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. This is true. Um, We went shooting. Ugh. And did fun things. And hiking. Yeah. You and Mike should go shooting someday. (laughs) I don't know if they have if they allow guns in Australia, but you guys should go do that. He's just so works as having a back and forth with Mike Bird on Twitter. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, what have I been up to? Mike I've Bird been... is a bad influence. Yeah, basically, he doesn't like coffee. How can you trust a man who doesn't like coffee? So uh, we're uh, we're going through uh, Lent, obviously, at church, and so that's taken up a great deal of our time. Uh, as an associate pastor, it feels often like, and Pastor Sean described this to me, it feels like you're kind of running around. With your head cut off in your hands, just trying to figure out, one, how to attach it, and two, how to dial your phone. And so it's one of those where you're constantly going, constantly running, and I'm glad Lent has begun because now the hard part is over. Now it's just trying to keep up with Lent. So yeah. that's kind of been it. Uh, I published an article. Nice, yeah. And uh, I, th- I forget the exact title, but it's on Soteriological Contingency in the Book of Revelation, or the Evangelical Review of Theology, so that... Uh, I think should be coming out in the next week or two, probably next month. I don't know. I'll have to email Bruce and ask. But yeah, that's been going out. And, and I forget when I published the Eve Christology article. Uh, early or late last year. Okay. Yeah. And so, yep, yeah, I've published a few things and my book is almost done. I just need to get the opinion of a few smarter people on whether or not it is good. And yeah, he's then, got a book deal. I'm, yeah, he's, yeah, he's awesome. And so I need to finish writing that or... Finish read it, writing it. I need to update some stuff. But yeah, that's... Uh, uh, and what are we drinking today, Allison? Or I should say, what are you drinking today? Yes. So I am drinking some apple pie moonshine oh. from Midnight Moon. 
Midnight Moon. 70 and, proof. Mm-hmm. And I am drinking Water. tea. I'm drinking <laughs> tea. Because I gave up uh, meat and alcohol for Lent. And so I have been a grouchy, grouchy young man these past... Well, I've been doing it for probably a month. About a month. So yeah. uh, if you want to hear awful jokes at my expense, one, just look at my Twitter feed. Cause There's people, many. Because people keep sending me pictures of carne asada and bacon and beer and all that fun stuff. And if you want to hear even more jokes, you can go listen to the latest episode of the Synergies podcast. That'd be episode 16, where Thomas makes really, really mean jokes about how I look like a certain Canadian actor, and it really hurts my feelings. Mm-hmm. So, Wait, was that from the parking lot Yes, incident? that is from the parking okay. lot. Don't, don't, nope, they can go, they can go listen to that. They can go listen I to that. I want to tell them. Nope, nope, Although nope. I don't remember the person's name. Exactly. So we'll not... leave that out. So, because I don't know things um, that don't pertain to my field, um... So we were in the gas station late at night. Uh, context. I was being a good husband and we're at the gas station. Continue. <laughs> and um, Nick went inside and these people looked at me and said, is that fill in the blank in there? Is that Tom Selleck? <laughs> and no, I just, Selleck. yeah, I just looked at them and just said, oh, I didn't check. <laughs> I, I didn't even connect the dots that they were talking about my husband. And yeah. um, so I got in the car. And it's like, Nick, um, those people asked if so-and-so was in there. And Nick just looked at me and was like, again? <laughs> yep. See, why can't it be, is Christian Bale in that gas station? Or is Hugh Jackman in that gas station? It's always this, this ugly dude. And it's like, I got compared to, who was it? Who's the other guy when we were in Whole Foods? And like a bunch of like teenage girls were walking past me going like, oh my gosh, yeah, I only figured that, that one oh, out. Oh, the Fifty Shades of Grey dude. It was the Fifty Shades of Grey dude. <laughs> I was dude. watching another show that he was in on, like, a detective having to figure out, like, about a serial killer. He seems to play some shady individuals. But Thanks, jeez, yeah. I was like, yeah. he kind of looks like Nick. And then Nick looked at me, he's like, that's the Fifty Shades of Grey guy. I was like, oh. Uh, yeah, that was not the first time that made me want to choke myself. So. Well. Yep. So, we've got this, and uh, I had some, well, what is, what am I drinking? It is a citrus cinnamony tea that, (laughs) if you really think hard and maybe punch yourself in the throat, it tastes like apple pie moonshine, so. Sure. That's, that's about. This is fantastic, by the way. The apple pie moonshine, man. Yep. So, anyway, uh, Deborah actually plays a big part of our relationship story. Now the cat has jumped on the couch and is now Bounding around. I don't know if you can hear his collar tingling. Did you get him? Come here, Barkles. Okay, he's on the the couch with us. We'll see how this works if he doesn't freak out. Uh, Deborah plays a big part of our relationship story. I was up on the hill at Viola. I forget the name of the film center building. We had been dating over the summer, and you had gone to, I think you're at Westminster at this point. Yep, I was at Westminster, Philadelphia for a semester. Yep, and we were talking on the phone long distance. She was about three hours ahead of me, and so we were talking, and she asked me, I think, something along the lines of, what do you think about women pastors? Yeah, because basically I was getting, so I had a dream of being a a scholar for um, basically just studying primarily the biblical canon formation. That Mm -hmm. was my goal, and... Thanks to Westminster, Philadelphia, and other um, fun places, I um, realized that I had a passion for gender equality and biblical studies and theology. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yep. So she calls me up and starts asking me that question. Me being me, I said, oh, one, I don't know any. But 
two, I no, I'm not not a fan. I don't, you know, it, it wasn't like I thought about it all. It's just you know, cultural culture and upbringing. You kind of just assume what you kind of drink from the stream of life. And, and I was telling him because we were long distance dating. I said because I was getting so much pushback for just existing, and mm-hmm. I was just like, it, it was very difficult to deal with every single day. Um, and it's not just the overt comments; it's the a lot of the nonverbal. So it's the sucking of a in of air, um, when and, and the nervousness as people ask what your major is, and you say MDiv, and it's like, <gasps> you know, it's just overblown, and it gets old after it happens every single day. People are were constantly worried and just fearful that I was going to go off the rails, become a senior pastor. And I just want to be a, a canon scholar, uh, you know, and, you know, specialize in church authority questions and early church and patristics. That was like my route at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, um, so I realized very soon that just simply existing, Nick was going to get a lot of lashback um, and that he was going to have to sort out his thoughts because the thing is I existed and he was also going to have to deal. So <laughs> Yep. And so I... Uh, I said, no, blah, 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 you know, insert intelligent objection via complementarianism in my thought. Sure. And uh, she... I was polite. Yes. And she said... uh, I also crushed him. She asked me, what do you think about Deborah?" And my first thought was, of course, who? Yep. And then I was like, okay, go study. Bye. Go go read Genesis... Or no, Judges 4 and 5. And I read Judges 4 and 5 and I was like, huh, okay. Uh, Not sure what to do with this. I mean, it's not as if I was like, had an ideological commitment to, like, comp- complementarianism yeah. or whatever you want to call it. It was more just cultural complementarianism. that I, And so I was like, oh, okay, so I took Ron Pierce's class. He had defaulted to complementarianism, and I was, at this point, an, ega- uh, an egalitarian mm-hmm. um, that had just kind of, um, it, let's just say it wasn't a strongly held view, because I, and I was pretty oblivious to a lot of the gender discrimination and other things that I faced in Biola. In hindsight, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of that. It, yeah, so anyway... We both had to really figure out what we believed and why we believed. And um, as I remember, this is one thing that drove you to wanting to take Ron Pierce's class on gender at Biola University. Yep. I took, in my last uh, full-time semester at Biola, I took Ron Pierce's class. And, you know, you look at Deborah, Junia, 1 Timothy, Ephesians 5, you know, all all those texts. And you just kind of look at them and... At the end of it, I came out of that class going, like, I think I'm an egalitarian. I don't know what to do with Ephesians 5 or 1 Timothy 2. But, and I learned this, basic this basic hermeneutical principle is you don't read a Bible verse. Yeah. You read all the Bible verses. All the verses. And I, you know, I went, I read Genesis, and this was the secret for me. Deborah was the thing that pushed me to the edge and reading just Genesis 1 through 3. I was like, well, whatever bad thing called patriarchy or complementarianism is, is a product of the fall. And I, last I checked, and this was something I think I said to Pierce, uh, at least uh, paraphrase was I don't know if I want to go to the fall for my ethics and yeah. or my ecclesiology, and so I just kind of was like, all right, so I guess I'm an egalitarian. I don't know what to do with one Timothy two twelve, but yeah, we'll just have to figure it out. And Cynthia Westfall and uh, Philip Payne kind of settled those questions for me. Yeah, but it was one of those like it's okay to not know what to do with the text, provided you think all of Scripture point to a certain spot, and that's just I think good hermeneutics is taking all the scripture and going, there are some difficult things, but the difficult things don't override everything else. So that was kind of what I learned. And Pierce's class was really valuable for just for hermeneutics and kind of dealing with those sorts of questions. Yeah, for me, I was a Bible major when I was attending Biola University, mm-hmm. and I they taught me some good hermeneutical skills there. Yeah. Um, 
So even before I ever went to Pierce's class, um, I came in um, knowing some basic things on how to interpret biblical texts. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately led me away from complementarianism, even though the school itself seems to be thoroughly complementarian, minus Pierce and some other um, some other folks. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I had a good education in many respects there. So yeah. So what are we talking about today? Oh, that's right. We're talking about Deborah. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to go through Judges 4 and 5. And we won't, we'll go through large portions, but we won't cover every single thing. I will read 4, 1 through 10, and then we'll just kind of go through it. Yep. We'll go through Judges 4, 1 to 10. And what Bible translation are you using? Um, I'm going to use the CEB this time because um, okay. I realized, and I'll, I'll reference other passages. I know I use the NASB a lot, but they really do tend to butcher gender passages. Yep. Um, although, I mean, they were okay at several points in here, um, and we can talk about that maybe, but here we go. After Ehud died, um, the other judge, the Israelites again did things that the Lord saw as evil. So the Lord gave them over to the king, to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, and he was stationed in Herosheth HaGohim. The Israelites cried out to the Lord because Sisera had 900 iron chariots, uh-oh, and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was a leader of Israel at the time. She would sit under Deborah's palm tree between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraim Highlands, and the Israelites would come to her to settle disputes. She sent word to Barak, a bin, uh, Binomam's son, the kid from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord Israel's God issued you a command? Go and assemble at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and Zebulun with you. I'll lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, yikes, to assemble his chariots and troops against you at the Kishon River, and then I'll help you overpower him. Barak replied to her, If you'll go with me, I'll go, but if not, I won't go. Deborah's, Deborah answered, I'll definitely go with you. However, the path you've taking, you're taking won't bring honor to you, because the Lord will hand over Sisera to a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. He summoned Zebulun and Ephtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men marched out behind him. Deborah marched out with him, too. All right. So male headship is clearly taught in um, the, yeah. the use of King Jabin of Canaan, somehow. Yeah. And by the way, I'm going to actually reference NASB because I can. Oh, man. Um, so if you hear something slightly different from what I did in the CEB, then you'll know what it is. So I, I love it how it starts in verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again do evil in sight of the Lord. Yep. So it, it's that constant pattern where they're doing evil again. So they keep, they keep basically um, serving false gods, rebelling against God. God hands them over. He says he, in this case, he sells them. Um, so there's a pattern of corruption. A judge come, gets raised up and brings peace um, after they have to suffer the consequences of their behavior. Mm-hmm. And it just keeps happening again and again and again. So, yeah. Allison, who raises up judges? God raises up judges. And that is specifically said in Judges 2.16, where I will quote the holy word of our Lord. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of, out of the power of those who plundered them. So a good hermeneutical clue. Don't read a Bible verse. Well, here we go. Here, here's some bad hermeneutics for you. It doesn't actually say in here that God raised up Deborah. Ooh. I know the narrative seems to support her 
her rule and seems to portray it in a good light and seems to see it as this like master plan of God um, to restore, you, you know, the Israelites and liberate them from evil. But hey, you know what? Um, it seems as though God was not behind this raising up it, somehow. I just wish the scripture uses my pet interpretive word to describe what I already don't see in the passage. That's kind of what I see. Anyway, we'll get to that anyway, we'll get to that, yeah. We, we, we probably shouldn't have interrupted to be snarky, but... But, you know, you kind of have to. Yeah, and by the way, like, um, it makes a lot of the chariots. This is the warfare technology of the era. Like, yep. so imagine, like, just crazy, like, scary weapons, and this is what he they have. Like, And they have the power to oppress for 20 years. That's, that's a sustained military campaign. Yeah. Like, that's insane. You have to have, like, you're going to lose men, even if you're, like, bigger and stronger. You will eventually lose men and resources. Nope. 20 years of this, and it's still going. Yeah, this is this is a scary, scary regime. Mm-hmm. And it does not look good for um, this little, like, tribe who's going to try to desperately get others to help them. Yeah. Like, just saying. Um, so now we're going to get into, so it, it, this is interesting. So we have a prophet. She's unique in that she's a prophetess, like Samuel. Mm-hmm. And I'd say comparable to Moses in that respect, but also a judge. Yep. Um, and so I think she's the only one in the judges who's actually in, in the book itself, you know, and again, Samuel's a judge as well. He's the last one, but um, she's the only one that's both a prophet and judge. Yep. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and again, uh, if you want to read more, um, also read First Samuel 1 through 8, because there's actually a lot of parallels between Deborah's story and Samuel's. So that's interesting. And I actually, I tend to think that um, the reason why the language of the, the same exact, you know, terminology of raising up a judge doesn't occur with her is because she's already serving as um, a prophet. Yeah, in yeah. Hebrew, it's a participle. It's She's already doing this. And yeah. so we're, you're kind of dropped in mid-scene with her. It's not as if, oh, now she has to do something. It's like, no, she's been doing this for a while. Yeah, well, and she's been, at, basically, she's been leading as a prophet. Now they're going to hire, they're going to highlight her, um, basically being, uh, coming into her own as a judge. Yep. Maybe the highlight of her career, you should say, we could say. We could yeah. say, yeah. Because she's already, okay, so there's a couple of things. Um, let's go back. She would sit under Deborah's palm tree between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraim Highlands, and the Israelites would come, basically, up to her to settle disputes. Hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting. Um, there's a, so there's a string of feminine words here. So this is unashamably, like, feminine here. Yeah. This rule is unashamably feminine. So it starts with, um, she's a woman and prophet, you know, both feminine. Um, woman of fire, we'll get to that, feminine. She herself, she is judging, feminine pronoun with feminine participle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of... That's kind of interesting already. So she's already kind of doing this, and the Israelites have to come up to her to get judgment. Yep. Um, another interesting thing here is wipe of uh, Lapidoth um, might actually be better put a, a different way. So there's some odd things here. So there's no um, common reference here to Lapidoth's father, for instance. Yep. You know, which isn't a deal killer. Um, and these are just some nuances that are interesting. Um, also, his name is feminine plural. His name is plural, which unless she's got multiple husbands named Lapidoth. Well, and it's feminine plural. And so it's not, it's odd. It's not a deal killer. um, Because again, um, uh, grammatical gender doesn't necessarily, you know, correlate with, you know, actual gender. Yeah, but if this is a a man, like it, it, it doesn't. 
it, it'd be one of those things. It, it doesn't just, it doesn't smell right. If, yeah, if and maybe this yeah. is my ignorance, but I mean, father is, I believe, feminine in um, Hebrew too. So anyway, all this to say, like, I'm, I'm not saying this is a, you know, steadfast case or a smoking gun, but um, another translation is that Deborah is the woman of light or fi- and fire. Yeah, because there, there's a variant of the word for Lapidoth. Yeah, so basically um, this is the meaning of the term um, used for Gideon and Samson narratives as well oh. in Judges 7, 16, and 15, 4. Mm. Um, also, um, it's an interesting parallel, uh, coincidence, to Barak's name, which means lightning. Yes. <laughs> and Lapidoth can also have the connotation of torches or something like that, yeah. which, again, you kind of look, it doesn't really fit with husband, but, I mean, it's it's neither here nor there, but it's just kind of cool. And, I mean, narr- in terms of the narrative, I think it makes more sense, frankly. Um, so this woman of light and fire. Yeah. It comes out of, you know, this dark, like, oppressive regime, you know, mm-hmm. the context of this dark, oppressive regime. Yep. All right. And then she summons Barak. Yep. So, you know, I mean, already off the bat, we, we see she's in charge. So it's already told us she's in charge. She's judging. They come up to her for judgment, and then she summons Barack. Um, and this actually hits a little bit on um, Becca Evans' question from Twitter. It, it's a little interesting how this passage gets read. I'll read it again. Um, actually, uh, I will read it from a couple of um, different sources. I... Um, let me, how should I say this? So I actually grew up um, reading large portions of scripture and it was part of my Sunday school course. So, you know, for, on the plus side, um, I was not um, one of those kids that just had like flannel graphs and like watered down, you know, um, versions of biblical stories. We just read the Bible, like seriously. Mm, nice. Um, and it worked for me. But the thing is, um, I, for the longest time, had a um, more... Um, I would say maybe sexist view of the Deborah story um, because of the translation that I had used at the time hmm. um, when I was reading, and that was the NIV. Um, so, but, you know, I know I complained about the NASB quite a bit, but I'm going to go ahead and read eight, verses 8 and 9 through the NASB, and then I'll read it from the NIV, and you can, like, think of some of the differences in tr- interpretation here. Then Barak said to her, If you will go uh, with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So, not bad. Yeah. Um, not bad at all. Um, so let's go look at the NIV. Verses 8 and 9. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Verse 9. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking. What course? The honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Mm. Now that's interesting. The course that you're taking. That seems, I mean, that that language seems to make it appear as though the fact that he's asking her to go with him is cowardly and wrong in some way. Hmm. And so it seems like a reprimand, like you did something wrong. And so as a result, or perhaps punishment, the victory is going to go to a woman. Now, if you're approaching from a certain culture um, that's patriarchal or maybe even, um, I would say, maybe even just a little bit complementarian or some culture that seems to think that um, men should lead and women 
uh, should not, and that doing so is a shameful practice, um, that latter one's going to make a little more sense to you. Here's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, the other one's a lot more, the first one is a lot more ambiguous that yeah. the NASB has, and that's usually why I like the NASB. I mean, they have a lot of interpretive slants, and I've complained about them before, but oftentimes, you know, they te they tend to be a lot more, with exceptions aside, um, they tend to be a lot more ambiguous, which I like. I would say, in terms of the broader biblical canon, we should interpret this um, maybe more open-ended situation. Um grammatically as the way Hebrews 11 does, and that's the great hall of faith. Hmm. So the question is, so, you know, let's just, we have, you know, different interpretations to choose from, and we can get into all sorts of grammar issues. And I did a project back when I was at TED's, but at, at the end of the day, it's an ambiguous statement. Um, I think we can catch very clearly that um, she's warning him that the victory will go to a woman. Duh. And that she's saying that she's definitely going to go with him. Yeah. Um, I think we can't come to the conclusion that she's chastising him. I think that's an interpretive slant that's not there. Agreed. Um, similarly, um, it doesn't seem like she's necessarily praising him, per se. She's just simply stating a fact. Yeah, it's, it's kind of along the lines of, for example, I will go or I will not go kind of thing. And she answers this question, I will surely go with you. So the question's been answered. Yeah. And the the, the fr next phrase is, according to the NRSV, nevertheless, the road on which you are going, which doesn't me, it's just the, the thing that's going to happen will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell sister into the hand of a woman. So it's basically saying she's not rebuking him. She's just kind of stating a basic fact, which she's already answered. I'm yeah. going to go with you. Nevertheless, here's something you need to consider as the, as, as you're doing this. Yeah. They are basically accomplishing an epic military coup against their oppressors. Yep. This is going to be, this is going to be crazy. And if they pull it off, I mean, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge honor. Yep. And uh, I mean, and this this seems to be kind of biblical, frankly, in terms of power and esteem. Um, she's saying, basically, yeah, I'm going to go with you for sure. Um, and I mean, frankly, is it unlikely that a military general would want their commander in chief, um, and especially a prophet, to go before them in battle? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's take the prophet into battle. That's not unheard of, um, yeah. biblically sp speaking. Um, but let's look at how Hebrews 11 actually interprets the situation. Because, um, you know, I mean, to our specific question, is Barak um, considered by the Bible as a coward um, who, you know, should have just gone for it? But, or is he really considered a great man in fa of faith? And so let's look at Hebrews, Hebrew 11's um, great hall of faith. So I'm going to read a little bit of the context, and then I'll read to you the section, his section. So Hebrews 11 one through three, and it'll be NIV. We'll just circle back. Oh, why there not? we go. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen and not made out of what was visible. That's, um, there we go, already. That's pretty something. Verses 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country, um, that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. 
okay, that's interesting. So these people um, were in situations where, where from a worldly power sense, um, they were not to be esteemed and their campaign seemed hopeless. But from God's perspective, um, it was totally in line with the values that God proclaims in his future. All right, so let's go. He lists um, all sorts of names by faith. Isaac, bless, you know, Jacob, um, by faith, Jacob, da, 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 by faith, Joseph, by faith, Moses. All right, so Moses is in there, parting the Red Sea and all. Um, Rahab, the prostitute. And now, verses 32 through 34, and which, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Well, there we go. I mean, that seems very biblical to me. Yeah. Um, so it would seem that biblically, Barak is not seen seen as a coward yeah. or as though he were falling into sin by surrendering his um, worldly power. Yeah. Um, he seems to be perfectly in line with God's will and prays for it in the Bible. Well, and there's also, I think, an additional point of, he's like, if God's going to grant me the victory, I want the person who told me God's going to grant me the victory to be there. Yeah. It's like, I, I, want, I, want, I want the magic person to be with me so we can conquer this thing. Yeah. You know, and it's just kind of one of those silly things. It's like he's it's not yeah, I, I just kind I of even think in. of Moses standing on a hill like raising his his hands up. Yeah. There's an intimate connection between essentially asking the prophet and uh to go into battle with you mm-hmm. and God's very presence. He's essentially mm-hmm. asking he, he sees that this is a helpless situation. Like they've got these chariots, they've got the might. This is a brutal, brutal like kingdom here. And it's helpless without the Lord. And so he essentially wants to bring God into the fight, God into the battle with him. And Deborah is a representative of God here. Mm-hmm. He's not going to battle without God, like just straight up. He's not yeah. going to battle without God. And Deborah represents God's word to him. And you take the word of the Lord with you, yeah. not the sword of the Lord, the word of the Lord. So there we go. There we have it. Um, to me, it seems like they're avoiding a certain conclusion here because um, there's no reason to read in um, certain interpretations. Um, but anyway, that said, we did some canonical interpreting there. Mm-hmm. Something else interesting to note, and then I'll let um, Nick take uh, read on in the um, pa- in his passages. Um, Jacob Wright um, from Emory University notes that there's a pattern in Judges where at the at the height we see Deborah. Women are basically ruling, um, and there's there's evidence there's archaeological evidence elsewhere too. Um, in uh, I think there's a footnote in discovering biblical equality. Yeah, I think so. Um, but anyway, uh, in the book of Judges, though, there's a further decline where the judges start to see themselves in more, I think, I would say even chauvinistic ways. And you start yeah. to see women going from ruling and being strong, um, like jail, to being more exploited and objects of violence. Delilah, anyone? Yeah, this is, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, I mean, it, we have basically a story uh, from an Israelite society depicting um, a world gone wrong. Yep. And what do they see? They see chauvinistic attitudes and women um, being depicted as abused and objectified yep. rather than ruling. And that's something to consider, too, in terms of a broader pattern here. Yeah. And Judges is also very keen to highlight human sin. Yes. And 
as we read, just keep asking yourself, is Deborah like all the other judges that are enmeshed in human sin? Just something to think about. Yeah, and I mean, she's really one of the bright, uh, well, she's one of the bright lights in Judges, she's, frankly. She's a woman of fire. She she really is. I mean, morally, I mean, think about the other Judges, too. Even the ones that made themselves, you know, their way into the Hall of, you know, Faith. Like, mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's not necessarily a pretty picture, and she's one of the more moral and ethical Judges. Yep. And so, uh, what we see at the end of verses ten, uh, 9 and 10 is... Uh, Deborah going with Barak to Kadesh. Multiple times it iterates, Deborah went with him, went with him, and stuff like that. And so, uh, starting in verse 11 of chapter 4 in Judges, I'm reading from the NRSV, just because it's the easiest translation. Now, Heber the Kenite, or the Kenite, had separated from the other Kenites, that is, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had encamped as far away as Elon Bazanin, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told, that is the enemy general, was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. There's the chariots again. Yep, and all the troops who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the Wadi Kishon. And Deborah said that she was going to lure them too. Yep. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, or rise, right. for this is the this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed <laughs> going out before, the Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him, and the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, while Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim. All the army of Sisera fell by the sword. No one was left. And so there are just a few things to point out in this section. Uh, One thing I I think I, I really like is, uh, Barak's disposition throughout this entire event. He doesn't get bent out of shape at hearing he doesn't get the glory. He just, he goes, okay. And he just kind of goes with Deborah. Which he's means, a good military man, frankly. Yeah. He wants the victory, but he's not bent out of shape about it. He's like, the, it's not about the glory. It's about survival. And so there's a difference there. And of course, God's glory goes to a woman. Um, we may think that's Deborah, but we have to, of course, keep reading. And I think at the end of the day, Deborah basically by going with him says, God is going to be faithful to you despite the odds. So it's, it's a story of God's faithfulness, as we'll see. And so, of course, Cicero, as we see in this section, is the only survivor of the battle, i.e. no one was left. And he, like a coward, retreats and just goes. Um, and what I think... This is a crazy victory of theirs, Yeah, too. this is insane. Um, and, and, and all Without this... Without his might, he runs like a... Yeah. Yeah, and it says he's the only survivor, and he just kind of leaves. And it's like, one, that's incredibly shameful in comparison to Barack and Deborah, who lead and go... And don't like and all this sort of stuff. Against where the odds. Against the odds. And this guy, you know, because his chariots got broken, runs away. And so it's a really interesting. Uh, the Lord isn't, and it's you know, the Lord is indeed going out before you. This is Deborah's word to Barak. This is literally the most authoritative word she anyone speaks in this passage. The Lord is going out before you. And it's one of those things. Barak's not like. Oh, I mean, it'd be really more authoritative if it came from like someone from <laughs> Southern Seminary. I'd really like this would really put this over the edge. Maybe here. he was a man, you know. Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. But no, he's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we go fight. And it's just it's incredibly simple. And and I, I think Barak gets kind of a bad rap here, but he's just like, okay, I trust. I trust what you've said to me is true. Well, and he refuses to go without the Lord's presence. Yep. Essentially, ref- and that's yep. that is faith right there. Yep, he refuses to go without the with. The person who best embodies what God is doing and what God has given a gift to do. And he does it without worldly acknowledgement. Yep. Um, In essence, he's giving up. You know, if he wins, this is a great victory for him. But he says it's not about that. He gives it up. 
yeah. and he goes. And in the biblical world, like especially um, as we see in the New Testament, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Yep. Um, in God's estimation, um, he is one of the first because he's one of the last. Yep. And so in verse uh, 17 and following, uh, now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between King Jabin of Hazar and the clan of Heber the Kenite. So there's, this is a new, this is a, she's kind of Switzerlandy, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, she covered him with a rug. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a can of whoop ass. No, she opened up a can of a, a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent. And if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. Notice how he's ordering to her too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very typical. Too. Yeah. He's scared, but he's also kind of probably a sexist. Well, I mean, that's kind of typical. You know, women are there to serve him. Yep. And, you know, so he tells, get me this, get me that. And go slave. And then go stand at the car and do this. Yeah. But Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, went softly to him, I love this, and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was laying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. Then, as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. I love how she doesn't say, he's dead inside. She's like, no, come, um, let me show you what happened. So he went into the tent, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg in his head. Jeez. And so and so on that day, God, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. Then the hand of the Israelites, the Israelites, not Barak, not Deborah, the Israelites, together bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. So numerous things can be pointed out, but... What I like is Jael is the one who reveals Sisera to Barak. It's like, come, let me show you what happened to the guy who's all these sorts of things. Yeah. And what I love about this is, one, Jael is not sexualized here. And a lot, yeah. she doesn't play up her sexuality. She doesn't do any of that. Because in a lot of, I mean, you watch a lot of modern cinema, the woman who's the she assassin, seduces she him seduces and him and she strangles him, you know, all this sort of stuff. That's more of, of a later Samson story with the decline yep. of the female actors yep here she's presented as strong she actually she's not presented as being submissive or cow you know cowering like oh my gosh you know she acquiesces you know go do this okay i'll do this you know but she does she's not like oh you know please don't hurt me you know kind of thing she, she knows what she's gonna do but i love the fact that she's not sexualized she's not put up on like oh this fragile little wallflower she's a woman of the community yep she's a woman of the community isn't that a actual um meaning of her name perhaps it can it's- be it's it's similar to deborah's uh, uh, woman of fire, wife of Lapidot. The Hebrew language is a lot more poetic and flexible than, say, yeah. Greek. And so you could read it as woman of the community or something like that. And, I mean, these aren't mutually exclusive categories because right. oftentimes, too, a name's meaning is, you know, kind of put out in... And, again, this isn't a press, this, this is an oppressor. And yeah. this is someone who obviously feels entitled. Yep. And, you know, what would make her act in this way, you know, and it, to risk so much? And... Probably, like, this woman was looking after um, not just herself and her own life, but the people around her. Yep. And we'll we'll get some hints about that later. Yeah. And so, at the end of the story, the, the big point is not that Deborah subdued King Jabin or that Barak sub- subdued King Jabin. Just as God is the one who raises up men and women, God raises up judges, God is the one ultimately behind all this who subdued King uh, Jabin of Canaan without basically predicating on going, oh, and... 
the man was the one who did this. The man did this. The man did that. No, the glory or the honor of this was given to a woman. And it, that's how God intended it to be. It wasn't a consequence of Barak being a fool or being a dummy. No, this is what God wanted to do. And God said, nope, Jael's going to be the one to drop the, you know, the tent peg on his head, not Barak and not Deborah. And isn't this really just so biblical? I mean, You're I mean, that this giving up of head? power and it's always the least, you know, that ends up being valued the most. Yeah. And all the, the values that are brought up here is just none of, none of these people are acting for themselves. Nope. They're risking life and limb. Um, putting themselves in danger um, yep. for the sake of a for justice and for God's world. Yep, and it's just at the end of the day, the glory or the honor and all this sort of stuff. Nope, that's that's given to jail because of what God decided to do. And at this point, I have to pivot to my view of God's sovereignty. Who are you, O complementarian, to tell God what God can't do? Sometimes it's biblical for a woman to tent peg a dude in the head. So that's yeah. kind of that's kind of how I read it. All right, so we're going to get into some elements of this very long song. Um, in Judges chapter 5, it's a very long yeah, song. Yeah, and the thing is, we're not Hebrew scholars, and there's a ton of cool stuff in here. Yep. Um, and so we're not going to try to bring out every single nuance. We'd be here all day. Yeah, and really, that's probably best left to um, people that are more equipped than we are. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into some of the interesting tidbits, though. Um, so first, uh, it is introduced as, um, so verse uh, 1, for instance, at that time, Deborah and Barak, Abinoam's uh, song, sang. So Deborah's named first here, yep. so notice that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, let's see, I'll probably, I'm going to read verses, I'm going to read the end of this little section, and then I'll pick up 6 through 9, because verse 5 will come in handy. So verse 5 concludes perhaps like a little section. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one from Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Sh Shamgar, Anath's son, in the days of Jael, caravans ceased. Those traveling by roads kept to the back roads. Villagers dispersed. They disappeared in Israel until you, Deborah, arose, until you arose as a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, then war came to the city gates. Yet there wasn't a shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's commanders who willingly offered themselves among the people. Bless the Lord. Hmm. So already it's interesting. Um, <laughs> there's, there's so many interesting elements here. I'd like you to catch maybe a possible parallel in verse 5 um, and uh, later um, between mother and Israel um, so this is perhaps even a title for um, Deborah, like yep. Mother of Dragons. Yeah, I don't know. Mother maybe, of Dragons. Maybe. Um, but it goes with um, what's related in verse 5, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So there's this parallel here. And again, mm. the prophet and judge represents God's presence among the people. Yep. Um, and so what we have is just this horrific injustice. And we have um, just complete unsafety. Um, people couldn't travel until Deborah appeared. Hmm. And so, I mean, uh, imagine that, like just that there's, there's actual risk to your life until Deborah, this judge appears and yep. sets things right. So also um, please note that um, throughout this, we have um, a singular, we have um, Deborah saying, I, I Deborah throughout here. Yep. And this is, um, this is the author of the song in scripture. Yep. So you are reading in scripture, something offer, authored by a woman. Yep. 
So congrats. <laughs> so let's see, I'll, let's see, maybe I'll go scroll down. There's something else that struck me in this longer song um, is just how much she brings in the people. So her leadership isn't true to the rest of this passage about self-aggrandizement, taking all like um, glory for herself, but she, she distributes it to the people. Um, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit on saddle blankets, who walk along the road, tell of it. To the sound of instruments at the watering places, there they repeat the Lord's victories, his villagers' victory in Israel. Then the Lord's people march down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up, sing a song, arise, Barak, capture the prisoners of Noam's son. Um, then those who remain march down, and the, basically he, they talk on, um, and then... But in verse 11, um, we talk about kind of this um, glorification of the villagers or the peasants basically rising up, um, being people of righteousness that take back um, their land and um, bring justice to the land. Hmm. So I just find that interesting. So intermixed with her and Barack's victory in jails, you know, especially as we'll see, um, is the people. The people yeah. are given credit. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's very significant. And I, to me, that parallels to the Bible's larger ethos of seeing um, human dignity hmm. um, in all people. You know, so even yeah. going back to Genesis with the Imago Dei and the being made in the image of God that was yeah. reserved for kings before, but the Bible distributes it to all people. Hmm. So similarly here, I think um, the credit for the victory doesn't just go to the people at the top, yep. but is shared. And there's something else too I just noticed. Uh, in terms of Deborah being involved more in the military, you have in verse 15 of chapter 5, the chiefs or princes, perhaps, of Issachar mm -hmm. came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into mm -hmm. the valley they rushed out at his heels. And so Deborah wasn't involved, was not involved in just giving the word of the Lord. She was also probably involved in uh, negotiations and tactics and strategy. Yep. So the chiefs of Issachar came with Deborah. So Deborah grabbed them yep. and involved. So she acts in some sense as a general, like she's, she's she organizing. Yeah. I mean, she's the one that said she was going to lure like this, like crazy, scary army. Yep. So that Barack's army can, so she goes on the front lines. Um, yep. this is not a woman that like leads from the distance. She's not distributing tea and cookies in church. Yeah, that's true. Um, not that I, I love tea and cookies. Just saying. Oh, I'm drinking tea. I wish I had cookies. Yeah. I always like, anyway, <laughs> cookies. um, yeah, another interesting side note, and we won't go into this too much, is the song as a whole also connects um, itself um, on a literary level to um, the liberation uh, from Egypt, hmm. um, especially verses um, three through five. So you've got basically, I, I think, another indicator of uh, Deborah's rule being connected even maybe to Moses's. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's another um, leader um, and prophet combo. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we've got that as well. And going to uh, later down in the chapter, in chapter 5, verses 24 through uh, 27, we read, of course, the word of the Lord, quote, and this is Deborah, I think, still singing. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a lordly bowl. How, like, condescending. Like, it's just lording it over this dude. I love it. She put her right hand to the tent peg and her... Her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He sank. He fell. He lay still at her feet. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. And so, it's one, it's magnificent Hebrew poetry. 
But something to notice, like right off the bat, she's singing about Jail's military and strength and her prowess and her, her conniving. Her conniving. He, he's t- like Deborah's just like this is a BA woman. Like this is just straight up. This woman is just awesome. And uh, what is interesting is she crushes his head. And so, of course, you, you immediately think, if you've heard the first Timothy passage, if you heard him, you immediately think of the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3. Yeah, crushing the, the head the of the Crushing serpent. the head of the serpent. And so you get a sense already that it's not just Mary who crushes the heads of evil and sinful uh, regime leaders. It's also Jael. So if you want to really look, you can see kind of echoes and types and movements of literary devices and historical realities kind of it didn't just go from uh eve to mary there are women and men in between who crush the heads of their enemies and jail right here is one of them and the other thing too i really like this um uh he fell at her feet he lay still at her feet at her feet he fell and emphasizing the feet this is something that you attribute to military or warriors yeah Uh, and it's incredibly shameful to be at the feet to be put at the feet of another and of course, you know, you think of Psalm 110, you know, he's made all your enemies a footstool under your feet. It's a, it's a shameful defeat. Here, of course, it's not just a shameful defeat. It's an absolute shameful death. But what's interesting is the map, this is what you would attribute to like a Samson warrior, like this guy, like this great, like demiurge, demigod, epic dude who puts his feet on the skulls of his enemies and drinks out of their skulls, you know, like Conan. Here it's attributed to Deborah, uh, to jail. And you, you don't see this kind of reticent to attribute quote, masculine qualities, whatever that might mean, or masculine virtues, to only to men. It's not as if women can't be strong or women can't put a, a tent peg through a dude's Well, head. and I mean, the whole, like, um, cha- I mean, chapter four introduced even Deborah with just un- unashamedly, like, feminine, yep. like, imagery and yep. um, strength. So in, in the Bible, it seems like that these two things of, you know, this idea of being strong and a warrior is not so separate um, from being womanly. And we'll talk, we'll talk again later about some of the birthing and warrior imagery that's oftentimes combined with God. Um, I've been like dying to get to that forever. So eventually we'll cover it. Eventually. Eventually. (laughs) But, but it is something worth noting that just as a, as a point of, of interpretive power, the Bible will often attribute very feminine things to very masculine men and very mass quote, mass quote, masculine quote, feminine. Yeah. And very, quote, very masculine things to ver- to women. It's almost and like he, the Bible's trying to teach us something. That virtue doesn't have a gender or genitalia that makes it, you know, certain things. Like, no. God gives people gifts. And if there's a brand of Tarth who could take off your head, the Bible doesn't thumb its nose and go, oh, well, she's an exception. Oh, what? We still wouldn't ordain her. I'm like, well, one, try to not ordain her if she's got that sword. But two, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, respect the people that God has made. God has made people with distinct gifts given by the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit to do certain things. And if a woman's going to put a tent peg through a guy's head, then that's biblical. And here's the thing. She didn't have to have, like, giant muscles to do that. Nope. Let's put it that way. She did not have to have giant physical muscles in order to um, be devious. Mm -hmm. And in order to, um, yeah, I mean, it's to be courageous, to um, to have that warrior mentality, Mm -hmm. like, she, and to be strong, like not to be phased by the entitlement or other things. Yep. And yeah. not only that, she knew exactly where to hit him, right in the temple, which is a very soft spot. She knew and way so, too well. And she, she knew exactly what, it's not like, oh, put it in the forehead. It's like, no, you put it in the temple. And so it's one of those things, it's just like, it, the, the text repeatedly is like, these are women, this is very feminine, they're mothers, and uh, even though it's yeah. a title. But at the same time, it's like, and it doesn't have any problem being like, and these are some like 
studly women. Like, they just did awesome stuff. Yeah. And so it's just really cool that the author is just like, I... It's, like, it's not that, oh, I got to grant them this because they're women. It's like, no, they're just straight up thug, nasty women. And it doesn't matter that they're women. It's just more awesome that it, they are women. Yeah, and by the way, this is a brutal world. Oh, like, yeah. this is a brutal world. Like, yep. this, is a, this is a world where um, when we say these people are oppressed, it's not that they're just having high taxes and they're, like, whining every now and then. Mm-hmm. Like, it, this, is, this is enemy soldiers coming in, um, raping your women. Yep. Um, just taking people, this is like your livestock, your livelihood being taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it is not a nice thing to be under the power of a, an, an enemy here that's yep. going to keep like exploiting you. It, it's not pretty. Let's no, put it that not. way. Um, all right. So speaking of which, um, let me go ahead and read verse 28 through 31 of this song. Earlier we talked about the mother in Israel who is parallel with um, Yahweh, um, the God of Israel. And now we're going to see another mother. This um, oppressive leader has a mother. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Sad. That usually happens. Um, and I'm sure this mother misses her son. But um, she's no peach. Anyway. Verse 28. Through the window she watched. Sisera's mother looked longingly through the lattice. Why is his chariot taking so long to come? <laughs> Sorry. Why are the hoofbeats of his chariot horses delayed? Her wisps her wisest attendants answer. Indeed, she replies to herself, wouldn't they be finding and dividing the loot? A girl or two for each warrior? Loot of colored clothes for Sisera? Loot of colored embroidered clothes? Two colored embroidered clothes as loot for every neck? May all your enemies perish like this, Lord, but may your allies be like the sun rising in its strength. And the land was peaceful for 40 years. Now, this is a little tame of an interpretation, Yeah, I think. So, I mean, I really... So, again, like, it's not that the CEB is the nicest and the best of translations. Because doesn't that sound kind of like she's just, like, doesn't have, like, tons of, like, colorful cloth or something, mm-hmm. like, out there? Yeah. Um, but then you, if you realize that this, like, colorful cloth is actually kind of more of a euthanism for, like, young women... Mm-hmm. Then it gets a little um, crazy. And I think um, Ron Pierce's article, um, I don't even know if it's out or not. It is. Okay. It's called Deborah Troublesome Women or Woman or Woman of Valor. Um, he talks about um, some of the phrasing here. Let me see if I can find just some of the ways these women are described. And it's basically, this is a violent description of abuse is really, and rape is what's happening. Mm. So you've got this kind of contract, unspoiled girls among the spoils. Yikes. So you've got a dehumanization. They're likened to colorful garments among the plunder. So they're reduced to appearances in bodily clothing that's discarded. A womb or two for every head um, is a more literal translation according Mm. to, or wooden translation according to Ron Pierce. Mm. Um, So what you have here is the mother of this military general kind of taking some comfort, you know, and missing her son's return in that maybe he's having a grand old time violently raping young women. And frankly, that's a common warfare tactic in the, oh, yeah. uh, it, it, that was in the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. Um, Still in Rome too. Not, yeah, not modern you, Rome, but Rome. Your city gets sacked. Like, um, all the young women get raped. Yep. Um, and that's just, you know, how things go. I mean, cause they're not really considered, they're, they're essentially trying to make a mockery of your property, um, yep. of your um, honor. It's desecration. Yeah. 
And the young women, they're not really people. They're just tools. They're just objects. Yep. Um, and again, by the way, this is one reason why we have some of the very strange Old Testament laws that we see. And we'll we'll go through those like in another time, in another podcast. Um, but we have a lot of restraining laws in the Old Testament that restrain just this kind of behavior where um, you sack a city and you rape all the young women. Um, but what we have here um, is basically young women um, described by their reproductive organs um, as unspoiled girls among the spoils, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we have a dehumanization narrative, um, basically with this um, other mother that's yeah. ended. And it's essentially a bl- this narrative of what to expect. Um, that the, Yeah, the women will be sacked, the women will be raped, and we don't even have a second thought of it. That's just what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, my son will have a great time. Look, Think about all the great, you know, all the women he's going to rape. It's going to be wonderful. Um, that narrative is obliterated by this woman of light and this woman of fire, Deborah, and the most blessed of women, Jael. A name that the, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, maybe the God-bearer, um, takes for herself. So, mm. I mean, think about this. Like, um, the mother of our Lord, um, by basically ac- agreeing to actively participate in the salvation of the world, um, by having bearing um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, took the name, um, took some phrasing that's associated with jail to describe herself. Mm. Um, that's, that's amazing. Um, but my point is that these powerful women and men um, basically fight against these powers of darkness by entering into battle in one of the most brutal periods. Mm. And I think um, that there, I mean, I think is a lesson for us all. Um, and here's the conclusion to this whole thing. Um, and where he's like, where there, you know, that we, we just got back with the, um, the mother going, you know, where, where's my, my son? Maybe he's just raping a bunch of women. And so, so may all your enemies perish, Lord. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace 40 years. It's it's kind of this like reverse, like this is what could, it could have been like had Deborah not and Jael yes. not been who they were. Yeah. Or, or rather who God basically made them to be. And so the end of it is, so may, so perish all your enemies, O Lord. Perish people like this. This is why we have judgment in the Bible, folks. Like, yeah. There, there are some people that they think they think very differently. They think in terms of zero sum. They think in terms of domination, exploitation. Um, they, they don't really think of people as people. Yeah. And I mean, we're called um, to be lights in the dark. Um, we're we're called to be women of light and fire mm-hmm. um, in this dark world. And it's up to us to fight against it. You know, men and yeah. women. Yeah, that is Deborah and Jail's story. We have. I found two objections worth talking about. All right, let's hear them. Uh, so I'm reading from Wayne Grudem. Okay. Uh, and this is his take on Deborah in his Evangelical evangelical Feminist and Biblical Truth. This is page 134, around there. Uh, he says, there were no men to function as judge. Barack could have. Barack um, could have. But there's a catch-22 here, if you think about it. Yeah. So Deborah's in charge. Um, but why is Deborah in charge? Because there were no good men. Well, how do we know? Barack's here. Well, obviously Barack doesn't count because, I mean, let's just see, he gave his authority over to a woman. So there's a catch-22. Yeah, it's like, a, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and so, but if he hadn't, then he would be the judge. You know, it's just kind of like. It's like you can't win. It's just yeah. interpretive, interpret, just hermeneutics. You're just kind of like, well, no matter what happens, I, I win. It's like, well, no, the text doesn't seem, the text doesn't tell you this. And, and um, canonically, we see the opposite. And the other thing is, too, and we'll get this later when we get to Hulda and these other um, 
um, powerful women. Um, there were oftentimes many good men around, and yep. God chose to use a woman because guess what? God does what God does. Yep. And so Wayne Grudem also says, quote, Deborah expresses surprise that no man had stepped forward to initiate Israel's rescue from the oppressor, but that a mother in Israel had to do this. And he cites Judges 5-7, which I just kind of go, there's nothing about surprise here. This is a, a victory battle cry. Yeah. Like well, just contextualize, this is a victory battle cry. The, the center, the entire poem has her at the center of the narrative. Yeah, I don't know. To me, it's like, all right, well, haven't you just said the story of Judges? Yeah. Like, the, the people cry out again because they fell again and there's no like there's no leader around to help them and so God raises up a judge like that's the story of the entire judges like he's zeroing in on um, one little gender aspect and he's making it the whole narrative when the biblical narrative itself does not point in that direction well and to say this sort of stuff I'm going was God not sovereign enough? Was God not wise enough to bring up a man if needed be? Well, and he did. Like, okay, like, yeah. let's look at the story of Judges after Deborah. Like, there were tons of, like, horrible men. Yeah. Barak seems like a great man of faith, unless he wants to contra contradict Hebrews. But let's let's look at some of the other ones, like, that aren't so savory. Yeah. The one that, I don't know, wanted to offer up his daughter as a sacrifice. Like, you know, it, just like he was technically following the rules. I mean, he, he said he would um, sacrifice the first thing he saw. I mean, there's plenty of judges here that aren't so savory and God raised them up too. Yeah. You know? And so it's just, it, it's begging the question. It's fallacious. Yeah. It's, you don't make this kind of argument unless you're trying to get around the clear implications of the text. You know, hence some of the weird um, hermeneutical gymnastics with um, the passage, you know, the part of the passage I discussed earlier where um, surely I'll go with you. And they, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know? How come how come Barack's being ordered by a woman? You know, it's like, okay, maybe, just maybe, you know, you need to sit down a bit and read the text and listen to God's voice about um, power and, you know, surrendering worldly power and that, yeah. <laughs> turn off John Piper, turn off Al Mohler, turn off Russell Moore, and read scripture on scripture's terms, not on your culture. Yeah. And it's one of those things I This is I, an eisegesis move. Is is why we're so indignant right now. Yeah. Um it's an it's a clear eisegesis move. Yeah. And I'm not saying that every in complementarian interpretation of scripture is pure eisegesis. It appears to be here because yeah. if you if you really look at what's happening, they're taking very small snippets of um isolated passages and extending them even beyond what's necessarily what, what's necessitated in them. Right. And so Tom Schreiner uh, gives, I think, a more nuanced objection. I, I don't think it's any good, but and so it's a little, it'll take us a little bit to go through this. But I think it's worthwhile because this is what the this is what most complementarians kind of appeal to. Most complementarians don't go the Grudem route, although enough of them do no. to where we feel the need to respond. So Tom Schreiner says, and this is in the Two Views on Women in Ministry book, uh, two thousand five. Uh, quote prophet and this he's speaking directly in reference to of course prophecy in the New Testament but also prophecy specifically regarding Deborah so for lack of a better thing we'll say when he says prophecy here he's thinking about Deborah that's he's not only thinking about Deborah he's thinking about Deborah so he says quote prophecy is not to be equated with the teaching required of those serving as elders overseers pastors it also follows that prophecy is distinct from the gift of teaching teaching involves the explanation of tradition that has already been transmitted whereas prophecy is fresh revelation. So my first problem with this, among many, is one, it assumes a New Testament ecclesiology, which is a very narrow thing in the way he interprets it, to basically say 
basically, okay, I don't see elders, I don't see overseers, I don't see pastors in the Old Testament. That is a New Testament ecclesiology that he's importing back to say, Deborah doesn't fit my paradigm. Well, for and how pastors I... aren't in. Yeah. And so it, it's basically either. a very narrow Protestant Baptist, very conservative reading of New Testament ecclesiology and going, well, Deborah doesn't fit in there. So she can't fit. And, and it's, an, it's an unwillingness to read one canonically. It's going, well, Paul clearly dictates that overseers have to be X, therefore this, and uh, that sort of thing. And I don't buy the distinction made between prophecy and teaching. I don't. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's a false dichotomy. Yeah, and it's really. I don't think very well based. I mean, they try sometimes very hard in First Corinthians fourteen, which you can um, look. You know, reference our podcast um, yeah. on that. Yeah, <laughs> it's so, just not very good. So, for example, and this is, I think, the linchpin of why this. I think this is a really bad argument. He says teaching involves the explanation of tradition that has already been transmitted. I'm like, one that is incredibly ad hoc. One that is not what tra- teaching actually is. And whereas he says prophecy is fresh revelation, my first response is that is really dumb because all teaching was at one time dependent on revelation or oracles or prophets. Well, and let's just go like, let's just stay in more of the quote modern period and modern being extremely relative here and go yeah. back to the Puritans where to preach it was to prophesy. Yep. And again, we think of prophecy as just telling the future. It's more than that. It's forth telling. It's too. the word of the Lord to you. Yeah. And so without revelation, you don't have a tradition to preserve. So he's put the cart before the horse. And I don't think you can reduce prophecy to an office. But look what's happening already. It's this foreign scheme that's being impressed upon scripture and trying to um, actively like move pieces into place. And yeah. again, I actually don't think that it's wrong to use systematic theology and biblical studies in combination. I think it's the way to go, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but... As long as we're not doing eisegesis. And let's, 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 there's another option too here. And I mean, Nick and I talked about this in our own journey. Sometimes, like, you come across a passage that doesn't quite fit your scheme, and you have this scheme because you've been convicted by other passages or other life experience or whatever. Um, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know how this fits together. It seems like this other stuff is also convincing. Sometimes it's okay to be. Um, okay with the tension as long as you don't stay there forever. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's more wise to do that. I mean, we've all done that. Um, Nick did that initially with Deborah. Mm-hmm. That didn't seem that seemed to challenge his scheme, and so he let it challenge. But he sat with it for a long time. He did his research. Um, for me, um, actually, and him. I mean, for a while we were complementarian, and we became. Um, I, I would say way back then, convinced of a more egalitarian position because we. Um, got a plethora of scripture that just got injected into our um, thought life um, that we hadn't considered from other exegetical perspectives. And so when we didn't know what to do with First Timothy, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Because we were able to live with the tension. You can keep both of these in tension for a while while you're trying to figure things out. And you don't have to necessarily scramble to make it fit. So even then, like when we approach First Timothy, it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to make First Timothy fit our new scheme. You know, we need to just sit and be patient and listen to the word of God. Um, yeah. And same going the other way. You know, Nick approached from a complementarian scheme and Deborah didn't fit. Um, instead of trying to slam and smash um, this Deborah story, this epic Deborah story, into his paradigm, he just or sat reduce with it. it. Reduce it to fit my paradigm. Yeah, he just sat with it. He said, well, um, I have this complementarian worldview. Um, I tend to think complementarianism is correct because of all these other things I've been taught. Um, let's just 
wait and see where the evidence takes. Yeah. And it's having intellectual humility. Yeah. It's going, all right, instead of, and this, and, and constantly reassessing what you're saying. So for example, if you th- genuinely think 1 Timothy 2.12 is what it is yeah. and everything else has to get filtered through that. That's a problem. That, that is part. a problem. Um, but, and that, and it is to say, like, it's I, okay to think first Timothy two limits women. That's okay. I mean, if it's, if it's genuinely held to and you've tried your hardest, that's fine. Don't try to fit the rest of scripture into that like narrow paradigm and the reverse. Yeah. And it means taking scripture seriously enough to be uncomfortable with where it, sh- where it forces you to go. Yeah. And that's something I've known when I was a complementarian, 1 Timothy 2.12 seemed awfully clear, at least in English. And, but everything else seemed to contradict it yeah. and contradict. I mean that in the sense of they don't jive well, Yeah, not that there's an actual contradiction. And it was, it got to the point where I was just kind of like, I don't like the idea of forcing things to yeah. smash together when they don't fit. Yeah. And it was one of those where bring we, other things in dialogue with it, but yeah. don't necessarily keep all the voices in tension if need be. Yeah. And that's fine. Cause it's like going through puberty. It's good to spend a few years going through puberty. You kind of have to in order to survive, but it's really bad to stay in puberty, you know? And so, and so I guess at the end of the day, when I see this sort of ad hoc, I think really not helpful or careful exit. It's not exegesis. It's borderline assertion. I just kind of go, what needs to happen here is you set these tech, you set these texts up on a pedestal. You just kind of set them on the table and you just kind of look at them and you walk away and you think about it. Yeah. You don't just go, well, 1 Timothy 2.12 solves the debate. My response is no text on its own solves anything. No. <laughs> like the story of Deborah itself doesn't tell you everything you need no. to know about scripture. Yeah. And that applies to every text. But what I get really annoyed with is people who go 1 Timothy 2.12 and women can't do anything here. And no matter what you give, no matter two entire chapters of Deborah being a badass doing all these sorts of things yeah. won't sway them. Yeah. And, and that's the part another where another one and another one and another one and yeah. another one. It's like, yeah. how many, how many women do I have to throw at you for you to go, okay, maybe I'm misreading this one text. And that's something I think people really need to stop and reflect on is, are you reading scripture well enough to go, okay, there's lots of pieces here. Let's not be reductionistic and go, uh, well, these women clearly couldn't do the thing that happens in my church 2000 years later in a, in a modernistic American yeah. evangelical culture. It's like, recognize it's check your interpretive privilege. Like, yeah. yeah. Check your interpretive privilege. And me too. Me too. Both fingers are at me right now. Me too. Well, and deeper and deeper than that. Um, let, let's, let's go a little deeper into things that like hit home for all of us without um, complementarian, egalitarian, fundamentalist, you name it. Scripture challenges all of us. All of us want oftentimes to take power, glory, and other things for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Either because we do come from a place of privilege and entitlement, or because maybe some of us grew up without it. And so now we think that everyone owes us something. Yeah. Or, you know, because we've um, been hurt that we need to take it from others. Um, Here's the thing. Like, the Bible completely flips our understanding of power. Um, of what it means to have glory and to have honor. Mm-hmm. And that's something that challenges all of us without exceptions. Yep. And it challenges us to interact with one another in new ways. Yep. Scripture doesn't care about your feelings. Scripture is here basically to mold you, conform you, and challenge you. Scripture doesn't care. Scripture's whole point is going, you need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that means wherever you're coming from, progressive, liberal, fundamentalist. And I fundamentalist, think it does include feelings, too. I think it does, Just too. Just saying. I think Nick. it does. I think it does. 
But, but it, he's saying that, yeah, there's something unmovable and yeah. something that everyone needs to deal with despite yeah. where they are in life. You know, and so scripture doesn't say something only to the stupid fundamentalist or to the stupid liberal. It's like, no, I'm talking to both of you. Yeah. Scripture is a roaring lion. It's, it's screaming at both of you. Be conformed to the image of Jesus. Yeah. And I, you know, in scripture, if you're reading scripture well, every, you know, every liberal impulse and every conservative impulse in you is being challenged. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, a lot of us too, like, okay, so a lot of us, and this will come up later, who are struggling with abusive context of varieties, uh, of, you know, various varieties, um, mm -hmm. and other things, like, this is the scriptural challenge. Like, can you stand against the dark when everyone around you thinks that you are the problem? Yep. You know, and scripture is the light, you know, scripture is the thing that gives you the charge to get through your day to wake up, to face everyone, um, because you've got the face of Christ, and to keep moving on, yeah. um, even in your most feeble and weak and um, less than Christ. Um, we, we try to model Christ sometimes, but we know that he was the ultimate model that came before us and that he stands with us. And again, like, I think all this to say, I guess you could say that the story of Deborah in particular gives us um, models that have also gone before us, um, people of faith, Barack, Deborah, and Jail, that stood against the, these impossible odds, that did it because, um, not for glory. No. Not for glory, but for the cause of justice, for God's people, um, to represent the God of Israel, and we should do that too. And we won't always get, like, honor, we will not always get recognition, we will not always get vindication. Sometimes we do, but oftentimes we won't. Yep. Um, so I think that I think is the, the larger lesson for us and to follow so. in their footsteps as the valiant women, um, men and women, mm -hmm. um, in the Lord. And at the end of the day too, being, and this is something I struggle with being as non condescendingly snarky as possible. <laughs> yes. Not everyone's where you're at. No one's where I'm at. No one's where you're at. And but at the same time, don't suffer fools. Like too, yeah. it, as much as you're able to and, and are safe. Cause like the thing is like. A lot of people want you to behave. Don't be disrespectful to other image bearers, but at the same time, they will interpret your um, insolence. Well, sometimes you need to put a tent peg through their argument. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes standing against them themselves will be interpreted as insolent, and mm -hmm. you got to do it anyway. Yep. And so we have two questions from our listeners. Yes. One of them from the Reverend Dr. I Love Coffee, Michael Bird, on Twitter. Uh, yes. That is at mbird12, the one, two. On Twitter, uh, he asked how not whoa, to. Whoa, 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 whoa! He says. Oh, he asked a new one. That I can muster a few of my minions to use my INTG powers to rule the world, and I just want to say that summon su actually the actual summoning of minions seems to be a little bit more of an INFJ superpower, I would think. Okay, than an INTJ one. You're speaking in Hebrew poetry. I have no idea what you're saying. Anyway, he, Mike <laughs> asks basically how not to be a Me Too villain. As in, uh, kind of, how do we guide younger men into not being Me Too villains? Okay, so specifically, he says, how not to be a Me Too villain, a guide for younger men. That's yeah. what his question is, and it's not yeah. a question, Mike. No, it's not. All right, so uh, the Me Too, or slash Me Church villain, you know, those those movements. For younger men, uh, off the top of my head, I have two things, but it looks like you've actually written something yes, down. Yes, I have written this. All right, so you've written I had to down. stop writing, because I was like, okay, this is turning into an epic rant, and I need to do... I don't know. We just need to post on abuse, frankly. We need a whole, like, podcast on abuse. 
I am putting it off um, because I am um, having a um, my own stint right now. So we will put that off to later and maybe closer to the upcoming CBE conference. Yep. Anyway. So what do you have for us? He's asking me because I have a ton written. Yeah, I know. He needs to give his input. I'll give my input. Um, all right. So I would... I have three points. Okay, really shortly because this is gone. Okay, I'll try. Okay, okay, okay. I would say um, how you um, cannot be a Me Too villain and be a guide um, for younger men. So, number one, develop a strong sense of self, okay. um, and that's that includes the self. The particularity includes manhood as part of your your own uniqueness, and I would say embrace it in ways that are constructive. And um, part of your own unique qualities. Mm. Um, rather than thinking in terms of a defensive or polarized masculinity um, that's opposed to the feminine. So basically, know yourself. Come come into yourself. And that's going to look differently depending on who you are. Um, and don't put your masculinity as in opposition to femininity. In Mary Van Leeuwen's um, terms, you are a neighboring gender rather than opposite. Um, and I, I'd say we have more in common than we do differences. Yeah. Um, and again, particularity doesn't necessarily have to be a barrier. Um, Jesus mm. uh, was a male, and yet all humans, um, regardless of gender, are saved in him. Amen. And regardless of whether they were Galilean or not. Yep, that universal atonement right there. I mean, after all, I do hear that Jesus was, in fact, black. So oh, yeah. there you go. And yet yeah. he saved all of us. Yep. All right, so that said, um, number two, see women... And people, as fellow humans, made in the image of God. Um, they are called to creative role and agency and priests in creation. Okay. Um, so when you objectify women and other people, um, that's where the trouble starts. Some of, I, I think some of you, and I mean, and it's not just you, it's I think women as well. Um, some of you had a, a rough life and you didn't have a father that was there for you um, in various ways. Um whether they were actually gone, whether they were absent to you, whether they, um, you know, just neglected you in various ways. Um, some of you were actually manipulated and exploited by women and don't want to talk about it much. Um, I would say sort through it and get help. Um, that's going to, that's an injury that's going to influence how you see women, other women and, and even men. In contrast, um, start seeing women as people that should be listened to, valued, and able to participate in the life of community with you. And then number three, um, empower and create and facilitate organizational structures that do not enable or further empower people with an unbiblical view notions of power that seeks to dominate others, especially oftentimes women. Mm. And um, statistically, this happens. Women get exploited by men and women get exploited by other women. So basically, um, I would say on an organizational level, if you have a predatory individual, don't give them access to their target, even in the name of fairness. Do not support ideologies that disempower women and give exclusive leadership rule to men or concentrate it in one charismatic individual or governing body. Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's, I mean, again, this is one of the premises of our um, society that's worked out pretty well and curbed a lot of abusive behavior. Um, do not keep proven, predatory, and exploitive people around. Um, and do not give them subtle rewards or, for dominating behavior or bolster their narratives. Um, so we've got a ton of scandals um, from the Southern Baptist Convention. And like I say all the time, conspiratorial power grabs, um, what could go wrong? 
Conspiratorial power grabs and believing and pushing a narrative that women should be subordinate to men. What could go wrong? Well, yeah. I mean, this shouldn't be surprising that there's a bunch of sex abuse scandals. Yep. Um, same for Willow Creek Church, too, who's an, which was an egalitarian organization. In this case, you had power concentrated um, in one man at the top. Um, and so, again, the issue is one of power. Um, and that's something that sometimes takes a gender form. Um, it's a lot more dangerous if an if a abusive individual is bolstered by an ideological framework that gives them complete control. Um, so dismantle those strongholds. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll stop. I'll get off my soapbox. We need to do a whole other podcast on this. I was going to say exactly what you said, so I don't feel the need to give anymore. <laughs> no, seriously, come on. Uh, there was a few things I could say um, very quickly. One of them was, um, I'll give an example because a lot of it can be theoretical. Um, for example, if you're at a men's conference, for example, which this actually happened, uh, and the speaker, because he's talking to a bunch of guys, finds it okay to make a excruciatingly crass and misogynistic comment about women. Uh, one of the biggest things you can do is not laugh at it. I'm serious. One of the biggest things mm -hmm. that you can do is not laugh at it or not acknowledge it as being valid or Christ-like or what have you. Yeah. And so when people make jokes around women or not around women, it could be whatever, is doing your best to not play into it. Go, you know what? That's not funny. That's inappropriate. doesn't mean you have to get on a soapbox. doesn't mean you have to smack him down. Get, or just means don't laugh and say, you know, that's not appropriate or that's not respectful. If enough of you do that, frankly, that's tide turning. Yep. And another is, uh, of course, listening to women, but also um, engaging with women as peers. And that's yeah. something I've, I've really tried to do as, as, as an associate pastor or someone who went to a seminary that was incredibly affirming of women. I have many women I consider colleagues. And so I, I seek them out for insights or guidance. Like Ines will say, I, you know, I'll listen to her sermons for, yeah. for empowerment. Um, there's, uh, and you have to look a lot of you, cause like, um, all of us, I mean, even women have been kind of conditioned to think that men are the resources. Yep. And so you really sometimes have to take a conscious, make a conscious effort to actually see women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, Making a point of engaging with women, not like in a not in a pat way, like oh, like everything you say is cotton candy. No one, <laughs> no one wants to hear that. Like I'm sorry, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. No one wants to hear that. But like a respectful engagement, like actually treating them like yeah. one. I value what you're saying enough to engage with it critically and respectfully. Yeah. Um. So I'll I'll seek out women podcasters. I'll seek out women pastors and just talk to them. Like and 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 putting yourself in a place where we should always encourage our pastors. And, you know, every day, you know, you should be praying for your pastor and stuff like that. But make a special attempt, if you have a, a pastor who's a woman, to pray specifically for her. So I, I try to make, for example, just on my own personal time, when I when I have prayer time at church, I try to pray for all my, my female friends who are pastors, especially, because I'm like... And your it, boss. Frankly. Yeah, and my boss. Yeah, my boss is a pastor. I pray for her, and I pray for um, the children's pastor. I pray for her all the time. And it's one of those where taking time to pray and to engage with women who happen to be pastors and telling them that and just being like, you know, Hey, I prayed for you today. Um, you're a rock star, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Like the spirit guides you kind of thing. And a lot of people just need a little bit of encouragement and telling someone like, Hey, that was a really good sermon. You know, don't, don't kiss their butt. No one likes to have their butt kissed. Yeah. But you know, like if it was a sermon and it moved you, let them know. Cause a lot of times people don't tell. A lot of it's a problem with seeing too. Yeah. And it's not, I'm just going to say like, that's not necessarily, any one person's fault always. Mm -hmm. um, it's really 
we're so conditioned by our context, by our upbringing, that sometimes it's truly difficult to see, actually see the people around us. Mm-hmm. We, we see people sometimes through distorted lenses or people are invisible to us. And if we're going to take a God's perspective, so sometimes even just pray in the morning um, for God to open your eyes and to help you to see as he sees. And that doesn't just um, mean um, like regarding to seeing women that comes down to all sorts of individuals. Um, and I think you'll start being amazed at how many um, talented um, people are around and people that can be resources and mentors and other things to come alongside you and that you can come alongside of. Yeah. And, and there's two more things I'll, I'll briefly say. One is, um, and I'll give, there'll be examples that I give, but I think they're bigger examples. If, so for example, if I'm working on an academic conference for a specific thing, my first thought is to don't try, reprodu- don't pray for their reproductive ability. No. Oh my gosh. <laughs> ask us that story. Number one. Ask us that story. But another thing yeah. is looking to find a, a, a comp, like a, a qualified woman who's a speaker. Yeah. Like, and that's, you know, going out of my way. If I'm doing a conference on a topic, I'm, my first thought is I'm, I'm calling up like my female colleague can be like, who's someone who's awesome in this field that, you know, I want to get her for this. Yeah. And it's not about tokenizing me like, well, we got one woman. There we go. We're settled. It's yeah. no, we want multiple voices at this table and not speaking for them, but giving them a platform, which to speak, not higher than men, not under men at the same table as men. And realizing one's own like abil- limited ability. Yeah. Cause you won't, Again, if you're not in a context currently that acknowledges women, mm-hmm. you're not going to know very many. And so hence yep. your experience is going to think there aren't very many. Oh, the dumbest thing I ever heard was I asked a complimentarian buddy, do you, you know, do you, you know, do you listen, uh, are you, are, do you listen to women pastors? He goes, oh, I don't know any of those. Yeah. And well, I'm like, exactly. well, no kidding. Because you're, you're in this cultural, like my asthma. No, no kidding. That's and, not always anyone's fault. Like no. any one person's fault. Sometimes right. there's a collective thing going and yep. it's hard to break through. Yeah. It goes for all of us. Yeah, exactly. And the the other thing is, um, in addition to this, is I'm working on developing kind of a, a, a lower level commentary series for uh, for a publisher. And my first thought was, I need to find uh, women that can contribute to this. And so, your first thought, I think, is someone who has a voice, someone who has a minimal sway, you know, in the church or in the, the in ecclesiological institutions, is to find a place. I want, it's not that I'm looking for a 50-50 split or a 60-40 split, but it's like I want to find competent, qualified, engaging people, and that includes women. And it, it means reaching out and asking you know, w- women and men to participate together in a certain thing. So, for example, if I'm doing a commentary series, my first thought is I don't want 10 men, 10 women, but I want there to be a lot of women on my uh, that say yes to this. Yeah. And it's specifically seeking out people and saying, hey, you can do this. I think you're awesome. You need to do this yeah. and give it and basically going like y'all, y'all are rock stars. Like just get up on stage and do your thing. And so it's one of those things too, where men are oftentimes selected for their potential yep, um, and women for a very skewed view of their accomplishments. So yep. usually women have to have a, a ton more accomplishments of men than men before they're even viewed as minimally competent. So it's looking for women, um, if you're in a position of authority, that have potential um, and competence. And it's, you know, sometimes, I mean, taking objective measurements can sometimes help with that. Yeah, and just a last point, too, and I think think this is really cool. We're going to try and do it at church, um, is there's a lot of young women at our church, you know, young, like 10, 11, 12 years old. And they're used to seeing Pastor Sean up there preaching. So it's, this is all normal for them. And I think it's really good. And so they see men, both men and women at the pulpit. It's not, un, it's a normal thing. Yeah. Um, 
getting young women early on, like even at that age, to be involved in sermon preparation, to be involved in proclaiming the word. Nick's um, very good at this too. Yeah. And so I've talked to numerous younger women that I'm going to have help me make my sermon and we're going to like preach it together. And it just means doing little things like that, making sure women are included so that when the time comes, they want to go into ministry or they want to be president or yeah. they want to be a CEO. They even want to be a mom, whatever it is they have, or all through all of them, all those. The fact is they're confident enough to know what they can do, that they know God has called them to a certain thing. And they have knowledge that the church loves them, that the church yeah. includes them, the church values them, even at a young age, and wants to see them thrive. They've grown up saying Pastor Sean and Pastor Nick at the pulpit, and they've seen themselves in both of them. Yep. And that's a powerful thing. And yep. I think that's something our church at um, First Baptist Church of Redlands does very good with all of the youth. Mm -hmm. Um the youth are very intimately connected and involved in all aspects, almost all aspects of church life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. And so, yeah, how not to be a Me Too supervillain? Include women. Don't speak for women. Just give them a platform and they'll rock your socks off. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Just, you give women the chance they'll take and they'll, they'll just rock. They'll knock it out of the park. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, ask God for help. Like yeah. I found anything, anytime I ask God for help with a, character development mm -hmm. he's helped me like yeah. quite a bit he's he's actually very keen and sometimes it's not always comfortable or nice like yeah. but it's good like i've never not received anything i've asked for with character development and sometimes it takes time and it's painful but it's worth it yeah. and uh our friend kat on twitter she's in charge of the protagonistas podcast which yeah is a very really, good podcast very good podcast yeah. asked us about uh the history of commentators on on deborah and so i found a brief article from priscilla papers by jg brown entitled what about deborah i'm just going to read a little bit of it because i think it's really good uh and this is on deborah martin luther in his concluding words on 1 timothy 2 9 through 15 says quote if the lord were to raise up a woman for us to listen to we would allow her to rule like Hulda." He was a female prophet. Calvin, that is John Calvin, places Deborah in a category of women who were supernaturally called by the Spirit of God. Quote, he, is above, he who is above all law might do this, end quote. He would. Contrary to the ordinary law of nature. None of the traditionalists saw female subordination in the church as an absolute. Most acknowledged the possibility of a woman such as Deborah having an extraordinary call from God, though John Wesley may have been the first to recognize specific women when he extended, quote, the right hand of fellowship to Sarah Mallet and Mary Fletcher, preachers in the Methodist connection. So you can hear my Wesleyan heart growing increasingly warm yes. right now. Uh. <laughs> so the, the, Calvin said it was possible. Yeah, Calvin and Luther said it's possible. Wesley so. made it happen. Yep. <laughs> Wesley usually does that. But yeah, so there's a lot in this episode. We thank you for listening. It's been yeah. a long time coming, so apologies for that. Hopefully yeah. it's been worth the wait. And I'll say this, like there's some unspoken prayer requests happening in the backdrop of this. Um, please, please pray for me um, as I try to um, represent Christ the best that I can, um, both in terms of my uh, value as a person made in the image of God, but then also valuing um, my neighbor as much as I love, you know, myself. So please pray for me and keep us in your prayers and maybe someday we'll talk about it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Someday. Someday. We'll have to have Mike on to have some coffee though. Oh, well, yes. Maybe he'll invade our podcast. The maybe. best coffee. Only instant for Mike. Oh my.